Amen. Thank you, Brother Bill. Uh, take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John and chapter 4. On an evening like tonight when, um, uh, you know, this, this uh, sermon's been preceded by a lot of bad news, a lot of suffering news. Um, I don't know if you've ever felt like this in church, but I have. When there's a lot of problems going on, a lot of hurting people, a lot of wounds, you think about all those things, they're kind of spinning in your head, you know, like ping pong balls, and then you think, why, why, why am I going to sit here and listen to a talk about the Bible when so many people are hurting? Like, this seems like a waste of time. I don't know if you've thought that, but I have. And um, in order to, to, to process what's going on around us, in order to, to better understand how we respond to the very real suffering that makes up our lives and the lives of others we, we love, there's nothing, better we can, there's nothing better we can do than to go into Scripture and to hear what God has for us from his word. Not because he flips a switch and gets rid of all this suffering that we're surrounded by, but because he helps us understand that there are bigger things than the problems that we face, and there are bigger things than the problems that people we love face in this life. So with that in mind, let's, let's go ahead and finish this series, When People Are Big and God Is Small, Overcoming the Fear of Man by Growing in the Fear of the Lord. During this series, we've thought about uh, the various ways that we tend to struggle with the fear of man. The, the different fears we have that are associated with this, the, the different small fears we have that, that pop up and control us. And we've learned that in order to overcome those temptations, in order to overcome those smaller competing fears, we have to have an understanding and a vision of God big enough to put them in perspective. And as we grow in the fear of the Lord, the fear of man and its hold on our lives weakens. The more we are controlled by how we see God, the less we will be controlled by other people. So is, is that the end of the story? Is it just that we shouldn't fear man and we should fear God? Well, not, not quite. Because for a follower of Jesus, this, is, this turns out to be the case. The opposite of fearing other people is not, not fearing them. Okay? The opposite of fearing other people is not, not fearing them. The opposite of fearing other people is loving them. And the opposite of needing other people is not simply no longer needing people. In fact, on its own, that wouldn't necessarily be healthy. But for the follower of Jesus, the opposite of needing people is serving them. So to, to bring our series full circle, we need a new vision for life. And this vision for life is more than not being afraid of and not being controlled by others. This biblical vision for our lives is this. Loving and serving people instead of needing and fearing them. Loving and serving people instead of needing 
and fearing them. Now, as we move into into tonight's sermon, I want to remind you of something that I've tried to uh, remind you of along the way. And in in fact, I've tried to have a signpost in, in most of our sessions with this thought in mind. That what we're presenting here, like most realities in our Christian life, is not a switch that we can flip. But it's a journey that God invites us on. So even when it comes to this new vision for life, living a life of loving and serving instead of needing and fearing others, this, there's not a decision you can make, there's not a button you can push to, have this, to, to start viewing other people this way. Like our sanctification and like growing into the character of Jesus in general, this is a path that we begin to walk and we won't be finished until we get to heaven. We should seek then to regularly have a course correction to get back on the path, to get back on our journey and keep our eyes fixed on Christ, knowing that he will complete what, it, what he has begun in us. So I, I want to look at four aspects or four needs we have um, of this new vision for life, four characteristics or aspects of this new vision for life. And here's the first one. Here's the first one, number one, and we will get to 1 John 4 in, in just a moment. I think you'll understand here why we're starting in that passage. Number one, we need this. For this new vision of life, to, to love and, and serve people instead of needing and fearing them, we need a reorientation to God that is from God, okay? A reorientation to God that is from God. Here's what the Bible teaches, That you and I are only able to understand what it really means to love others instead of fearing them as we live in this new reality of our changed relationship with God. In other words, let me put it like this. I, I can relate to others as a Christian should relate to them, as a follower of Jesus should relate to them, only to the degree that I understand my relationship with God through Jesus. And, and to the degree that I understand that and how I relate to God, how God sees me, how God accepts me, how God loves me in his son, I will then be able to rightly relate to the people around me. Because God loves me, I fear and love him back. But also because God loves me, here's the amazing thing. Not, not only do I love God back, but then I learn to love others. Not necessarily because they're lovable, but because God loves me. We do need other people, but it turns out we don't need them to get something from them. We need other people in our lives so we can show love to them. We talked about this in, in one way um, with the Sermon on Cups and Mirrors. But, but as we look at 1 John 4, and we're going to start in verse 7, I want you to think about how John describes God's love for us. Notice in the way he writes, how important it is to understand that God has acted toward me in a certain way if I am then going to act toward others in the way he expects me to. All right, 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, and he's talking to Christians, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God 
towards us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him here in his love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Now look at, look at uh, chapter 5 and verse 1. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begot loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. Now, this is just an amazing, sweeping passage, because in these few words that I've just read, John has covered everything from how God has loved us and how he has acted to save us, to how we then love him back, and to how we love others, and he's connected that to our obedience to God. It's all a package deal. We can't come here and take one thing and leave the rest. God loves us so that we can love him and love others. God's love was costly. God's love wasn't less than a feeling, because love is just not actions. God also feels a certain way about us because he loves us. But God's love is more than a feeling. It's a feeling that motivated God to do something radical that would affect our eternity. God's love caused him to send Jesus to the cross for our sin so that he would die in our place, so that in his atoning work we can be loved and that we can be in a relationship with him. Jesus provides then the ultimate example of what it is to love others in the most costly, difficult, painful way. Now, as we think about what it means to love others instead of fearing them, we must learn to understand God's love. That's the key. And we talked about this a little bit last week in, on, when we talked about knowing God. The, the best way to, to, to understand this whole fear of man problem is not to think less of people. It's not to think less of people and to become uh, an independent-minded, secure type of person because we think so little of those around us. That's pride. Pride can help with your fear of man, but not in a healthy way. (laughs) God doesn't call us to deal with our fear of man by thinking less of people, but by thinking greater thoughts of him, and in particular, his love. And we learn to love other people not because they earn it or not because they impress us or not because they're worth it somehow, but because of how loved we are by God. And as we are reoriented to God, we recognize that this love that he has for us in Jesus devastates our pride and helps us love others. Ephesians 1, you can turn there or I I have it on the screen. Think about this as well. Think about what we have in Jesus. He writes, having predestined us, speaking of God, unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Some people are scared by the word predestined. Notice it's by Jesus Christ. Who's predestined? All those in Jesus Christ. So if you're Jesus Christ, then therefore you are 
predestined to what? To adoption. You get to be adopted as one of God's children. According to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. You see this? You see what's going on here? God loves us because of Jesus, because we have a relationship with him. Therefore, we are adopted. Therefore, we are accepted. Therefore, even God knows us more than we know ourselves, including our sin. He also loves us more than we love ourselves. That's the miracle of Christianity. So here's the thing. If we really give our minds this, if we really grasp this, if God has already accepted me in Christ, why then do I think I need acceptance from others? And when I fail to get acceptance from others, why does that devastate me so much? If God fully loves me in Christ and he has responded to my faith by bringing me into his family, by promising me eternity in heaven, by dealing with my biggest problem, which is that he is good and I am not, by saving me, how then am I controlled by what other people think about me? If God's love is what Jesus says it is, that changes everything about our insecurities, about our fears, about our worries, about our stress, it changes everything. If we have this orientation to God that is from God, we no longer need to look to people for acceptance because we won't have an acceptance deficit anymore because we will realize that God has given us so much more acceptance than we could ever deserve or ever merit or ever even comprehend that there's nothing left for anyone else to do. But to the degree that we forget that God accepts us, then we'll be hungry for it from others in ways that, by the way, they won't be able to satisfy it. To the degree we forget that God has included us, we'll always be looking to be included by other groups of people. We'll always want to be in the inner circle, as C.S. Lewis said. And once we get into that inner circle, it won't be enough, so we'll want to be in a cooler or, or better inner circle because we have forgotten that we have already been included by God. If we have forgotten that we've been adopted by God, then we'll always want other people to bring us into their group. We'll always want to feel like we're a part of another family because we've forgotten that we already are part of one greater than we could ever imagine. If we forget that we're justified in Jesus, then we'll be completely devastated and fall apart when anyone has a negative opinion about us in their court of opinion. As we reorient ourselves to God, as we live this vision of life that first looks to God and how he loves us as if the, as the song, Jesus Loves Me, becomes the center of our reality, then because we're covered and protected and accepted in God, we won't ask of others what they, in the end, will never be able to give us. Ed Welch says this, God, then, is the one who fills us. He pours out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. God actually showers us with himself, if we want to be filled so that we can feel happy and better about ourselves, then we will never truly be deluged with God's love. Did you catch that? If that's your desire, if that's your craving, if you just want to be happy and feel better about yourself, then God will not satisfy you. And here's our thought process. Welch says, he continues, we think it's safer and more effective to look to other people to relieve our emptiness, but the love that we desire, however, can only be found in the living God. And I hope you grasp that. If you could just grasp that paragraph along with me, 
If I could just grasp that, wouldn't it change so many things? See, the love of God is so transformative towards us that it changes our relationship with him. But get this, here, and here's what John is saying. Not only, not only does God's love to us change our relationship with him, but God's love given to us then changes our relationships with other people. So that's the second thing, the second element of this new vision of life, a reorientation to others or other people. A reorientation to other people. I'm, I'm still kind of coming out of First John 4, so I want you to think about this. Uh, if we really believe the Bible, okay, if we really believe the gospel, then God's, because God's costly love toward us has done what it has done, we can take big risks in our relationships with other people. We can afford to invest in other people and be disappointed. We can afford, we'll have the space, we'll have the margin to love other people that don't return it. Okay? We'll be able to be betrayed and eventually move forward. We'll be able to be let down by others and eventually keep going. We will be let down and will face disappointment from other people who didn't do what, they, we, what we thought they would do or what we thought they, would sh they should do because of the relationship that we have with God. Because when, when we get to the point where we are so rooted in this reality that God loves me and accepts me, and other approval is not what I need, then you'll live like other approval is not what you need. See, I'm, with this series, I'm not just trying to convince you of some sort of argument. I'm inviting you to a different way to live, a different way to respond to other people, a different way to face disappointment, a different way to face betrayal, a different way to face being let down. It's not that we don't need to be loved. Please understand it. It's not that we don't need acceptance. It's not that we don't crave being included. It's that we already are. That's what this new orientation toward God and others helps us see. Now, I, I hope you see why this mindset is so hard. Okay? I, I think we already intuitively know why this is so hard. Because our definition, the world's definition, the culture's definition of a successful life is how many people need me? How many people like me? How many people call me? How many people have a positive view of me? How many people, and isn't, no, we wouldn't admit to this in church, right? But isn't this it? How many people serve me? Now think about it. We, we assume that that's, that's what it means to be a successful, uh, flourishing American living in the 21st century. That's what we're all shooting for, right? We want to be appreciated. We want to get paid well. We want a lot of people to look up to us, and we want to be remembered well. If that's the definition of success, then if you look at Jesus in his own life, in the 33 years he was here ministering on, earth, on the earth, he was not successful. If our definition of success and the way we go about, the way we get up in the morning, if what drives us to live and drives us to succeed, if what drives us to accomplishment is a definition of success that our Savior did not live up to, is it possible there's something wrong with our definition of success? Now, I realize this can be very painful to get around and kind of tool with this. 
But, but that's not the biblical image of what it means to be successful for a follower of Jesus. The world's definition is how many people serve you, but Jesus' definition is how many people you're serving. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? The head foot washers, right? <laughs> I don't know if we really believe it, but that's what Jesus said. I don't know if I really believe it at times, but that's the image the Bible gives us of a life well lived. The good life, as we like to talk about it. So, so what are some of the differences then between loving and serving? What does this reorientation to others look like? Well, I want to say this, that loving others isn't always or isn't necessarily just being nice to others. Sometimes loving others means doing things they don't immediately appreciate. Sometimes it means even telling people no if we truly love them. Because love, love is not, hold on, let, let's establish this first before we move on. Love doesn't mean you buckle and do whatever the people around you want you to do. Love isn't being a candidate for peer pressure. Love means we want the best for the other, and we're willing to sacrifice a great cost for them to have that best, okay? That's love. That's love. It's possible that we have an intense desire to give and sacrifice for others so that they'll return it, but that's not love. It's not love. Loving others won't always be easy. In fact, loving others will never be easy. It means I give up my own time. I give up my Saturday morning agenda maybe to help somebody else. It means you'll get hurt when somebody moves away. It means you may have people stay at your house when you would prefer it to just be you and your family. But, but that takes us to our third point, which is who's on the receiving end of this love? We're not supposed to fear and need, we're supposed to love and serve, but who exactly are we to love and serve? What is the extent of our loving and serving? How do we know if ours has reached who it is supposed to reach? Ed Welch says this, this is probably a pretty good test whether or not we're loving and serving. He says, loving others makes life less comfortable. Really exciting sermon point, isn't it? That was a real go-getter. It, it kind of hurts even to hear it, doesn't it? And not because of my squeaky voice. It's the truth. Loving others makes life less comfortable. We know that's true because we've done it, and, and sometimes we failed to do it. Sometimes we failed to love because we know, I'm not going to take this discomfort in order to do good for another person. That's beyond my threshold. That is asking too much. And, no, and number two, they'll never return it for me. And number three, it's not going to help me be appreciated by others, so I'm not going to do it. But love makes life less comfortable. Jesus tells us in Matthew 22 to love your neighbor as yourself. Who's the neighbor? Well, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, a better question for the Christian would be, who is not my neighbor? Because it turns out, Jesus' definition of neighbor isn't just the person that lives next door. Although if that happens to be a particularly annoying person, you need to know it is the person who lives next door. But our neighbor is everyone. This is a catch-all category. This isn't a particular age group. This isn't a particular socioeconomic status. Everyone is our neighbor. 
Now, our, our, now it's funny because that's a, that's a popularly quoted statement from Jesus, but our culture does not believe that. It doesn't believe it. That's why on, on your social media accounts, you've been herded in a particular group of uh, news feeds and posts and advertisements to your liking, and everyone else is cut off. I got an email yesterday uh, from a, a Missouri political party. I won't mention the name. And it could really be either one because they're sending out the same sort of stuff. It said I needed to donate a bunch of money. It said, well, the first thing it said is, David, you've not been reading our emails. Have you left us? I'm like, well, that's a good thought. Uh, maybe I have. <laughs> but they said, um, uh, this other party uh, doesn't love you and, and doesn't appreciate the country and everything will be destroyed if we don't raise enough money. And, it, and what, even one dollar counts. And what they were getting at in this, in this email is really troubling because I'm thinking they have, you know, some sort of media person telling them, like, people read this stuff. And that's really upsetting to a Christian. They're, they're saying that nearly half of the country, and it's true whatever political party you prefer, nearly half the country doesn't care about you and wants to destroy you and they're your enemy. So you need to fight them by giving money to this very well-meaning organization. Now, listen, if we really think like that, if we really think, um, you know, that most people are out to get us and most people hate us, and if they disagree with us about something, uh, then we don't owe them any love, uh, how do we get that from following Jesus? That is the kingdom of man. That is Babylon. That is not the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't teach, Jesus never teaches us to think if somebody disagrees with you about some sort of philosophical concept and they're trying to destroy your life. You say, well, what if they are trying to destroy my life? Well, we'll get to that in a minute because God also tells us to love our enemies. Our, our, our culture definitely does not agree with Jesus that we should love our neighbor. Well, the first person, honestly, the first one we owe love to is, is God. It's God. Uh, uh, most people in the world think you need to know yourself first and then you'll be a contributing member of society. The Bible says know God, love him first, and then and only then can you love other people. God calls us to love unbelievers. We're to love and serve unbelievers. That doesn't just mean sending missionaries to foreign countries, although, it, by the way, it does mean that. But it means that there's people that we interact with, that we interact with regularly, that we want to see come to faith in Jesus. Why? Because we love them, and that is what's best for them. It means we share the gospel. It means we pray for them. We all need people we're praying for that we want to see saved. And if you don't have anyone you're praying for, either meet some lost people or find another Christian friend who has a prayer list and pray for those people. We want people to know about Jesus. The extent of our loving and serving includes our families, our physical families, not just our spiritual families, but our, our families. We're to love and serve them. This may be taken for granted. You're thinking, well, of course I love my family. But I think sometimes we can even need and fear our families. I think sometimes the conflicts that happen with our spouse are because we need and fear them more than we love and serve them. That's why we're very demanding when it comes to you should say you're wrong and you should apologize, but it's maybe a lot more difficult for you to say I'm wrong and I'm sorry. 
And if that's your mindset, you probably are needing and fearing more than you're loving and serving. If you're getting onto your kids, not because you care about their character and their formation, but because they embarrassed you in public, then it's possible that you're not loving your, and serving your children as much as they're this sort of trophy that exists to make you proud. Well, they don't exist to make you proud. They're a soul that you're shepherding so they can learn about God, so they can know Jesus. And yeah, they'll embarrass you in public sometimes. But they're not your tool. And then, of course, lastly, we are to even love and serve our enemies. This is hard, isn't it? <laughs> this is really difficult. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them uh, which despitefully use you. That's a high standard. And this is not natural. You're not going to accidentally just wake up one day and start loving your enemies. It's not going to happen. <laughs> no, if we begin to love our enemies, it's, it's only because of the Holy Spirit working in us. It's only because we started walking down this path. And listen, if you're in a mindset, if, if your vision of life is that you need and fear people, well, your enemies won't give you anything you need, and you'll definitely be afraid of them, right? Because they can harm you. Maybe physically, or maybe in other cases, they can harm your ego. But the Bible tells us where to love them. Now, I, I want to be clear, loving, loving our enemies doesn't always take the same shape. If someone's trying to hurt you, you may have to separate physically. If someone's done something wrong, even if it's someone in your family, you need to report them to the police. Why? Well, because that's really the best way you can love them. So loving your enemies doesn't mean letting people hurt you. Physically, I want to make that clear, but it does mean looking out for their best interest, even if they haven't done anything to earn that. Uh, number four, and we're done, the shape of our loving and serving. Uh, go, go to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, you can read it on the screen. 1 Corinthians 13, in the beginning in verse uh, Verse 3. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burnt and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity is another word for love. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. Now, I, this, is, uh, this is a lot to swallow. <laughs> but that, that list, I, I don't want you to just listen to the poetic element of it. It is very poetic what Paul is saying here. That Paul describes a lot of the things that we do a lot of the time. Did you notice that? Did you see yourself in those verses? I know this is like a Valentine's Day devotional kind of text or whatever, but this is actually very cutting because Paul is describing what you and I do to other people around us all the time. And he's saying none of these things come out of love, but we're called to be loving. That's bad news because Jesus is calling us to a life that doesn't reflect the things that we naturally want to do. That's what living in light of this love means. That's what it means to love and serve others. And the shape of this is shaped by the love 
of Jesus. Now, um, <laughs> isn't it possible? Uh, isn't it possible that that if I do this, that my relationships are going to be lopsided, David? Isn't it possible that if I really commit to this way of viewing others, that my relationships are going to be lopsided and that I'm going to do way more for others and be more loving for others than, uh, than they'll love me, that I will do more for them than they do back for me? Yeah. Uh, disclaimer, this will lead us to a lot of lopsided relationships, okay? But hold on a second. Isn't our relationship with God lopsided? Isn't the relationship that you and I all the time claim to be the most important relationship in our lives totally lopsided? What if God did for you and gave to you tomorrow only what you had earned? It's a terrifying thought, isn't it? But that's precisely how we treat other people all the time. Yeah, this will lead to some lopsided relationships. But uh, this, is, this is what's amazing. Ah, this is just incredible if we get this. God's love for us is so incredible and it's so satisfying that we, we will be able to handle lopsided relationships with other people. We'll be able to handle it because of how satisfying his love is for us. So consider your motivation when it comes to loving and serving others. Consider your motivation. What is your response when someone doesn't give you back what you gave them? How do you respond to people when they don't approve of you? When they give you indifference? When they're passive-aggressive? Or worse, maybe, when they're angry with you? See, if we have all these expectations and demands of how other people need to treat me, then our responses are going to be pretty negative, and they're going to be pretty Christ-like. There's a chance we'll be devastated that's a sign that we weren't acting out of a heart of loving and serving. We were acting out of needing and fearing. Uh, number two. Number two, we need to look to Jesus. Look at, look at Philippians chapter two. Look at Philippians chapter. This is one of my favorite texts in the Bible. And it, it just seems like no matter how often I go back to it, there's just more there. He tells the church at Philippi, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, let me ask you something. Is that a lopsided relationship? <laughs> what Jesus has done for us? It is. But we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. When Jesus' kingdom is ruling in our hearts, we will aspire more to serve than to be served. When Jesus' kingdom is ruling in our hearts, we will look for more ways to love than to just be loved. When Jesus' kingdom is ruling in our hearts, we will realize that we are so covered, so accepted, so appreciated, and so known and cared for by God that, that how or whether or not others know, love, and care, and accept us will not matter as much as it used to. Number three, think about how you can minister to others in specific ways. 
you know, it's a good, it's a good practice to scheme for others' good. Scheme for others' good. Be strategic about it. Find ways to bless people. And you know what's funny? Is if, uh, since we're Christians, I mean, this is really, really satisfying. You wouldn't think it. It is, but it is. Find ways to be a blessing to other people. Look for, we're always looking for opportunities for us to get noticed, aren't we? It's constant. It's constant. Even when we think we're serving others, we can put up a, a really positive post to encourage other people on social media. But then we check it a hundred times to see if we have a hundred shares yet. Well, that's not loving and serving. We're still needing and fearing, aren't we? See, even in our kind actions, we can actually, it can come from a heart of needing and fearing people. And it's good to strategize to how we can bless others instead of strategizing how we can be blessed. Number four, and this is, this is your exercise for the week, okay? Number four, learn how to regularly pray for other people. And by other people, I don't just mean your friends. I don't just mean your pastor. I don't just mean your connection group. You'll see the list. Learn how to pray for, yes, your, your church, people in your church that have burdens. Learn how to pray for your family. But also learn how to pray for unbelievers and even learn how to pray for your enemies. Intercession doesn't just mean our prayers mention the names of other people. Intercession means we're standing alongside someone else and praying beside them for them. We're making their burden our burden, right? And this is a very other-centered way of praying, but the whole Jesus way is a very other-centered way of living, right? Intercession's hard. It's painful, especially if, if, we're, if, we're, if we have trouble with prayer and we, and we, have, we have a lot of trouble even ta- wanting to talk to God anyway, it's even more difficult to pray for other people if we've had trouble consistently praying for ourselves. But this is the way of Jesus, Standing beside the other, even another who hasn't accepted us, who hasn't given us anything, who hasn't included us, maybe another who has betrayed and hurt us, standing alongside them and praying for them. Precisely what Jesus did on the cross to those who were crucifying him. And by the way, God is not going to ask you to pray for anyone who has done more to you than those men did to Jesus. God, God help us fear and need people less so we can love and serve them more. And as we love and serve them more, we will need and fear them less. This is a biblical vision for our lives. Let's all stand.